0: I've never done a Jen Wilkins study, so I'm pretty much bowled over by Jen Wilkins. But also, I feel like we have found a sweet spot with this Bible study and Jen Wilkins and then hearing from people personally each week. I just That's just a sweet spot. So let me just say that. And then let me ask this question. Um, how many of you actually, and this is no guilt, I'm just curious. How many of you actually watch the Jen Wilkins video? Okay. Okay, well, no, 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 I mean, I mean, throughout the study, how many of you have actually watched it? Because they're long, I mean, so I'm just curious, because, um, because I have, but I, I, have to, I have a confession, I didn't watch it for today, because as you know, this is a large chunk of scripture, and it took so much time, and I did this talk, and then I was like, if I sit and watch her there's going to be a ton of other things that I probably realize I should say. So I say that hoping she doesn't contradict anything I've said in her teaching and encouraging you to watch it. And then when you watch it, realize, oh, Tracy didn't watch this because she got that wrong. So, um, but okay. Am I on now? Okay. All right. So, uh, my name is Tracy Hoover. I think I pretty much know everybody in here. And, um, I am, I've been at Black Knoll, my husband and I, Don, my husband Don and I have been at Black Knoll since 1992, so we've been here for 30 years this year. We arrived that summer with our 18-month-old son, who's now 31, um, and uh, I'm the mother of seven children, so, um, uh, and they're all adults, which is a new place for me. So I'm learning a lot. I'm in a completely new stage of learning what it means to be the mother of adult children, and with seven of them, um, it has turned into quite a community. One, as you know, I have two lovely grandchildren. But along with my now seven children, there are um, spouses and partners. And then the connection of those people with other families, um, with their families, is, it's created quite a community. My prayer time is long. Because I have a lot of people I pray for, because of just the connections that I have with my children, so I'm very thankful for that. Um, All right, let's jump into uh, these last two chapters of Hebrews. Ah, I got the long, I got the long one, Um, but two fantastic chapters. Um, I'm going to read these first two verses, these first two familiar verses of chapter 12, and I'm going to. The translation I'm using today is the New RSV. Therefore. of the throne of God. These are probably two of the most familiar verses in all of Hebrews. These two verses and then chapter 11, that first verse that uh, Alexa read last week. And they certainly are some of the most familiar to me. I honestly think I might have memorized them when I was in high school, uh, maybe even junior high. They're verses that I've known for most of my Christian walk. And so When we look at these verses, and and the Jen Wilkins study has really made us pay attention to these therefore, and we get, so while we get the flow of the therefore from chapter 11, because the author has just given us this comprehensive list of members of this great cloud of witnesses, so it's easy to understand what that therefore is, but I don't know that I had ever considered how much the therefore in this passage, which I always assumed connected to Chapter 11 and the Great Cloud of Witnesses, but I don't know that I've ever thought about how it provides such an introduction to really this final wrap-up of the epistle in Chapters 12 and 13. So I want to say that this is therefore, all caps, T-H-E-R-E-F-O-R-E, with an exclamation mark, because it is therefore— I think we can safely say this is the biggest therefore— in the whole epistle in that it really refers to the whole letter. So this, therefore, it, it, it's making, there's a specific shift that's happening. It's almost like 11 was the bridge. I'm not a musical person, but, you know, 11's like that bridge as we talk about the the hall, uh, hall of fame of faith or whatever. Um, and w- and But with this, therefore, we're going to shift. And, and so think about it this way, therefore, given all all that we've heard since January, all of us, but given everything that this author has said in Hebrews, therefore, how then, given all that we know, how then are we to live? And I just have to pause here and talk briefly about how, and I've already indicated this, how personally impactful this scripture study has been for me. Um, I started back in January, New Year's resolution, but of course I didn't kick it in until late January doing this Bible read-through for the year. And of course, there's all sorts of ones you can use. And I'm doing the Bible recap. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Okay, so I started the Bible recap. I'm not doing the one that's online because I, I, I don't like to do that. I have the book, because she actually has a book and with a little study guide. So I'm doing the Bible recap. I started it, um, Tara Lee Cobble is the name of the woman who does it, and I started it in late January. And so for me, I am not kidding y'all. And if if you were doing it too, you know what I'm talking about here. So I was reading the Pentateuch while I was doing this study in Hebrews. So the the law, the Mosaic law was where I was in my everyday reading. Uh, And then I was doing this Bible study and it was amazing because I'm reading about these sacrifices, which I think had I not been doing the Hebrew study, it would have felt like a slog, (laughs) you know, Leviticus. But because I was doing this Hebrew study, I was so attentive to these laws and then to Hebrews and to understanding in my small, non-Jewish way, what this meant for those people. And so of all things, As we've moved through Hebrews, we got to chapter 10, Jesus, the better sacrifice, that ultimate climax, and we got there, did y'all pay attention, right before Holy Week. So can I get an amen? I mean, that was awesome. The better sacrifice, right before Holy Week. It was so timely. Um, And so then we get here. How then are we to live? We are to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. And if that seems impossible, and it is, the writer of Hebrews is going to remind us of how the Father helps us do that. Now, the humor is not lost on me that one year ago this month, I also taught in Philippians 3, of Philippians chapter 3 verses 12 through the first chapter, the first verse of chapter 4. And that in those verses, Paul uses language that sounds very similar to this in the call of a runner to press on toward a goal. Humor not lost on me because I am not a runner. So you can be assured there will be no runner analogies. I've never been a runner. I will never be a runner. I don't have any analogies. And it's funny to me that the two passages I got actually have that race and running illustration. in it. But I do do yoga infrequently but I do it and I used to do it more and I have to say that one thing that I have learned is when it comes to maintaining my balance which is one of the things that I try to do when I do yoga focusing keeping my eyes on a single spot like choosing a spot on the wall or if you do that when I focus my eyes on a single spot it makes all the difference in my ability to balance. And that's what these verses are saying here. Set our eyes on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Well, I may not be a runner, but I do love being a pilgrim. Uh, I've never done the Camino. Don't know that I ever will. But pilgrim imagery is something that I love in literature and throughout scripture. It's a theme that I'm just so drawn to, this notion of being a pilgrim. And I love what the Life with God Bible says about these two verses. So I'm just going to read this. It uses the word pioneer in its reference to Jesus. Let me read to you its comments. Jesus pioneers a way for believers through the uncharted territory of this world, perfecting our faith as we follow him. We must, like pilgrims, travel lightly by laying aside every weight And the sin that clings so closely, willingly enduring hardships until we joyfully reach the heavenly Jerusalem and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And we'll get to that soon. And I love, love all the varying translations here of two of of these words in this verse. The Greek word here for author Jesus is the author. Is archegus? If I'm saying that right, um, archegus means in Greek, author, captain, prince. And of course, if you see that word, you recognize the root of our word architect and finisher. The Greek is teleotes, which means one who completes or one who consummates. Wow. If we can just take a moment and sit there with those words. Jesus is the captain, our prince, the author, one who completes our story, who brings it to complete perfection. In verses 3 and 4, the author points our eyes to our suffering Savior. And I think in this last week, this, these verses, again, have come alive for me and I hope for you. Consider all that Jesus endured in his persecutions, his betrayal and death. And considering that, focusing on that, everything we walked through in our own limited ways just last week, we can be deeply encouraged Why? Because he endured and then he rose victorious, conquering the grave and the very worst that the world can throw at us. And this is the hope that we always have before us, the glorious fellowship that we'll hear more about farther along in this chapter. If you look at verse 5 in chapter 12, the, the author moves us, to considering God's discipline. This is what I mentioned earlier, God's way of helping us lay this sin aside. And it's almost like, when I thought about it as I read it, it's almost like the writer moves from all that we've just talked about in these first few verses and in all of, of the epistle of Hebrews. And don't you love how at the very end he says it's a very short letter? <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <laughs> really? Um, so it's almost like he moves from all that we've just talked about to answering the question that is being asked by this young church. It's almost like he's reading their mind. And that question is why does it have to be so hard? It's almost like this is where he's going in this verse. The verses quoted in five and six are not just from Proverbs chapter three, verse five can also be found in Job. Yikes. <laughs> hard things. Yes. God using them to discipline us. Yes. If you remember when Mary Banks taught us last semester from Romans eight twenty eight, all things work together for good, but all things are not necessarily good things. As we look in these verses from, from verse 7 to verse 13, I want to just make this disclaimer that while it's an important exercise, we're not going to spend time this morning deconstructing our relationships with our earthly fathers. Um, I think we know, and if you need to be reminded, let me assure you that our earthly fathers are at best mere shadows of our divine father and at worst, grotesque deformations of him. So here we see, and I haven't watched Jen yet, so I don't know if she's going to point these out. Here we see what I think is the first better in this section. Jesus reminds us that God is the better father. The better father loves us by forming our character and doing that well. How does he do it? Well, thank the Lord for his Holy Spirit and here we see how he provides discipline to shape us. And let me just point out, this is not something that is, is needing to be introduced in that Jesus talked about this when he talked about the pruning of the vine. So this notion that it's not easy is, is, is something that's there in the gospel as well. Discipline is not punishment. The Greek word here again is, the Greek word is pedaea. Now, Padea actually implies training and instruction. I was an education major at UNC in the 80s, and there was a method of teaching that was briefly, I think, popular then. I was in high school education, and it was popular in the high school level, and it was called the Padea method. So Padea, translated discipline here and most of our text, implies instruction, training, and even nurture that Greek word. God loves us so much that he wants to complete his work in us. And the writer of Hebrews assures us here that God will use hard things in our life, trials to shape us. Have you had a few of those? And I love the fact that every person in this room has. So none of us are like, "No, I don't, that part doesn't click with me. Uh, There was a season in my life many years ago when the sheer number of children I had and the physical, psychological, and developmental needs of all of them compounded by some serious medical needs of a few of them landed me in what felt like an eternity of isolation from the vibrant relationships that I had enjoyed in my neighborhood, in this church, in community, I felt like I lived on an island with just my husband and children, some of whose demands required more than I ever thought I could give. And the ocean around that island seemed vast and never-ending. Now, no one in this room has to reach very far back to think of how God may have done something similar in your life to shape you. None of us have to. This is what's really. Awesome about COVID, right? I would imagine that most of you in this room experienced a similar form of isolation as we have all endured the last two years of COVID. We have all experienced a stripping away of certain things, the absence of which may have felt freeing at first, but then it became isolating. And as we slogged through the end of 2020 and moved into the spring of 2021, for some of us, despair was no longer on the distant horizon. In that season of my own life so many years ago, and then again in these last two years through the Holy Spirit, God brought me to this very passage in Hebrews. And I have been reminded that things and relationships in my life are not where my hope lies, It has been a training. I like to call it a padea point in my life. COVID may have been one of those padea points for you. And what might be others? Places in your own life where you have experienced God's training, his instruction, his nurture. Places in your life that have been hard, but from which you have experienced God's goodness. These may be good jumping off places for a small group, or better yet, for dinner conversations together. Sharing these stories, and please be willing to share them. We grow, with, we grow when we hear them from one another. Sharing these stories can be helpful only, however, when we land with this question How then will I be changed? And that is a question we always want to come back to when we endure a struggle. How then? Will I be changed for God's kingdom? These and many, many more, the hard and challenging events of life are the moments when we are changed. I recently read this in some BSF study notes that I thought was a great, it has a lot to do with what we're talking about. It says, it is easy to forget that you face every event in your life by God's design When you fail to believe that God has purifying intentions in your trials, you can wrongly see him as uncaring or punitive. God will intentionally put you in situations where you need to trust him more fully. Sanctification can be a painful process. God's purifying blows to your idols only reveal his tenacious love for you as his child. And like I said, every person in this room has experienced challenges and trials. They are not good, for most all of us, we sense that, but they may be moments of sanctification. And we hope they are. Years ago, in this Bible study, I heard these three words, Sanctification is real. It happens more often under the better father's discipline and it is most often not easy, but it is real and it happens and we need to believe that. And so I love, isn't it perfect in verses 12 and 13, as if understanding how tired and wearying discipline makes us feel, the author encourages us with poetic language that's really reminiscent of Isaiah. It says, therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. In verse 14, as we move down, we see yet another of those Hebrew warning signs. This verse reminds us of the striving, if you recognize that verse might throw you back, to the striving that we talked about in Hebrews 4 when Daniel spoke to us about striving for rest. Here the author talks about striving for peace. What keeps us from striving for peace when things get hard? Again, we all have such a great common example here. What keeps us from striving for peace when things get hard? Bitterness. And in verse 15, we are warned about bitterness. And we are reminded that when bitterness takes root, all sorts of trouble springs up. Again, like I said, the illustration we all identify with, think back. Weren't there moments of resentfulness when you masked up to go to the grocery store or just to speak to your neighbor? Or what about when you logged in to to attend yet another Zoom worship or bundled up? to gather outside 10 feet away from another black and light for prayer and plastic communion cups. Did you feel resentment? And remember how easily that resentment could slide you into real bitterness. The author here is warning his readers who faced, let me tell you, much, much bigger challenges than distant worship and cloth mask. He encourages them to strive away from resentment and toward peace with everyone. And I love some of his words about how we treat our leaders, too, in the church. And then we get to these verses about Esau. Okay, it's all I can do, and my daughter's here so I'll try not to embarrass her. It's all I can do, not to slip into the popular tune from Disney's most recent film, we don't talk about Esau, no, no, no. I just, I just couldn't help it, you know, because we don't talk much about Esau. And I love that tune from Encanto, if you haven't seen the movie. We don't talk about Bruno. Google it. It's a great song. We don't talk about Esau. Well, what is all this about Esau? These, just these, these verses, and why is Esau um, inserted here? Okay. Well, these words about Esau are wrapped up in the author's warning about this. What did Esau do? All right. This is in Genesis 25, at the end of chapter 25. Esau is super hungry right? He comes in from hunting. He may have been hunting for days, and he's starving. He's so hungry that he doesn't care. He doesn't care about his birthright, and he gives it up to satisfy the immediate desire of food. Well, what did he do? What what is that story about? I think that what he did, well, I know what he did, is he allowed what he desired to define him. The story of Esau this odd little story in the Old Testament, serves as a powerful warning for us today as we find ourselves in a culture that tells us we are, in fact, defined by what we desire. And that is a lie. We are not defined by the object of our desire as Esau allowed himself to be, what defines us is not what we desire, but who desires us. Just as Esau's birthright marked him as the firstborn beloved son of Isaac, we are the father's firstborn, the object of his desire. So let us not reject that identity for the cheap fulfillment of our own desires. See, my pages are sticking together here. Through Jesus, we know that God is our better father. And now we're going to turn to the next better. And you know what that is. Verses 18 through 29 tell us all about it with some really descriptive language. This section begins with the Hebrew audience being reminded of what was, and the story that they knew was the very real and all, A-W-E, and all, All, but also A-W-F-U-L, the awful presence of God, a presence to be feared. And the adjective I used, I think it was on page 152 in the Bible study when you compared these two mountains, the adjective I used to describe the mountain in the Bible study from Exodus 19 is terrifying. That's what it was. It was terrifying to the the Israelites. The writer contrasts that... The spirituality of the law, which is represented by Mount Sinai and that very real place and that real event of giving the law to Moses with the spirituality of grace experienced at this new mountain, the better mountain, Mount Zion. We have come to Mount Zion and it is better. Here we enjoy the gifts of firstborn children. And again, on page 152, the adjectives I use to describe this mountain are joyful and celebratory. We are God's beloved. Unlike the old mountain where God laid down the law that required over a millennia of the blood of sacrifice over and over and over, this new mountain, Mount Zion, offers grace. And in that grace, perfection remember verse two, he is our perfecter. How are we perfected? Through the sprinkled blood of Jesus. Verse 24 reminds us of where we begin. At the very beginning, our first story starts with the shedding of blood. The word from, the word, it talks about the word that comes from Abel's blood. Well, here's what the word, if you look back at that story, the word from Abel's blood is injustice, disobedience, strife, Jealousy and hatred. Blood was there in the beginning, and now, finally, in the shedding of Christ's blood, we are forgiven. Perfection and righteousness through the blood of Christ are what we find at this mountain. If the picture of this new mountain doesn't make us eagerly desire Him, as we're encouraged in 928, what will, right? Finally, It's the city that we heard whispers of in chapter 11. Let me read verses 22 through 24 to you. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the same sentence that says, God, judge of all, are named the spirits of the righteous made perfect, That is the mountain that we are coming to. And in this in-between time, we can know that is a part of our lives. Verse 25 gives us another warning when he tells us not to refuse what is coming. And why would we? Because the description is pretty powerful. I think, when I think about why wouldn't you do that, I think we would refuse it because it's not familiar. It's not like anything we have ever known. And And in that moment, we can understand what this early church was struggling with. What they knew was Mount Sinai and what they knew was familiar. And they, even though the stories of it were horrible and scary, it was the law that they knew. And what we're called to, let's face it in this description, it's not familiar. We can hardly imagine it. This new kingdom is not of this earth It is not, and I understood this for the first time reading it over and over again, trying to understand the shaken part. It is not even of the stars of the universe. It is a kingdom that is real and solid and eternal. This is what is coming. This is our future. Not some immediate earthly gratification like what Esau grasped, not relationships shaped, distorted, distorted really by bitterness, resentment, and pride, not even a shrouded dark mountain with the true voice of God that fills us with fear. No, this kingdom is more than we can even imagine. But the writer of Hebrews here asks us to try to imagine it. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem the innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Our names are in the book. The city of God, the judge who knows the mediation of the son and declares us righteous and perfect. This is the better mountain, and it is a kingdom that will never be shaken. I've really been given the gift these last few years of having time. So there are some of you who aren't in this stage of life yet, but I have time. And I've been given the gift of being able to fall into my love of literature and poetry. And one of the things that I have loved and appreciated about that is it has expanded my imagination. And I would say God is redeeming my imagination and allowing me to be able to enter into these kind of descriptions and maybe kind of think about it. How do we respond? Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, here's what the author has just said. And this is where I was thinking about the stars. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going too. Everything we know, everything, the earth, the mountains, the oceans, even the stars of the heavens can be shaken. All created things can be shaken. This kingdom, this coming kingdom cannot be. And how hard it is for our minds even to imagine us imagine that. Let us pray that God will redeem our imagination so that we can truly worship him. We respond to the news of the unshakable kingdom with what Marcia touched on with thanksgiving and worship, marked by what? Reverence and awe. I loved how in the Bible study on page 153, Jen got to the nitty-gritty, right? She asked us to think about worshiping with reverence and awe. How often is worship, mine at least, defined by what I think about myself while I'm worshiping? How do I feel? I don't really like this song. Uh, Should I raise my hands or it might make people around me uncomfortable? I don't really like clapping. I don't have a lot of rhythm. (laughs) This is how I am often in worship. But if we hold these truths, these truths about this unshakable kingdom before us when we worship, and getting back to 12, chapter 1, if we can disentangle from the sin that holds us back, then we can worship in reverence and awe. And I love the sanctus, uh, Casey, make sure and tell when this, that we do now before um, communion. And let me tell you why, because a long time ago, my husband and I were down in Savannah, Georgia and um just for a vacation and it was Sunday and one of the things that we do you know I don't know how everybody is is if we're on vacation and it happens to be a Sunday we will sometimes find an Episcopal church to go to because my husband jokes that with the Episcopalians you kind of know what you're going to get never really know with Presbyterians you know you know I'm serious I mean if you're just randomly picking a church you might as well go with the common book of prayer because then you know what you're going to get right So we just randomly chose this church. And if you've been to Savannah, you're going to know this church. I think it's Christ Church Episcopal. It's one of the oldest churches in in the country. And it was founded by one of the Wesleys. Um, And uh, anyway, so it's this beautiful, small church, but beautiful. And there was this young rector who, I'm just saying, okay, he looked like, I think King David probably did. He was just this young guy and he had this beard and he was kind of handsome, you know, I'm just saying. But he had a it, he just reminded me, I thought, this is what David looked like. This is what King David looks like. He was just this really great, and, and, of course, he was dressed in full garb. We were preparing to take the Eucharist, and the Sanctus was playing, and I didn't know it at that time. And, and I, honestly, it took me a while as Wynn was playing it to remember why that was pulling up this memory. Um, and I looked up, and this young priest is dancing as he's preparing communion. He was dancing. It wasn't fake. He was getting the elements, and he had his row bone, and he was dancing. I think he might have been barefoot, too. But I was just struck when I saw that. It was a high moment for me. I will not forget that moment. And, and now when we sing the thing, it always comes to mind, and I'm just reminded of what this kind of worship can look like for us. You might not see me dancing my way up to the table, but I'm just saying. Um, all right. Okay, so I love. Okay, let's see. Where did I? Where did I, I? That was a. I went in my notes. All right. Um, okay. Yeah. So I've done all that. All right. Come, Holy Spirit, change the way we worship. That's what we want to pray. Um, as we come to the concluding chapter, so we're at chapter thirteen, finally of this beautiful epistle. The writer turns our minds again, more specifically, to how then we shall live. And I love that the way he or she begins all these admonitions are with these simple four words. Let brotherly love continue. And that's, as we know, not just brother, brother, it's sisterly love. Let brotherly love continue. And I loved how the Bible study helped us frame each of these admonitions in these verses with with those four words. What would it look like if we loved strangers as if they were brothers and sisters? And what about those who are in prison or who are treated unjustly? What about our spouse and our children? What if we held our money in such a way that we kept it available for those we encountered with need? Just recently, I put two pieces of silver duct tape beside the door handle of my driver's seat um, with these words etched in permanent marker, stop and pray. (laughs) You know, I see it every time now when I get out of the car. And I have to say that those three words, stop and pray, often remind me, if I do them, sadly, I'm already learning to ignore them, if I do them, to love those that I'm about to encounter. The cashier at Harris Teeter. (laughs) You know, the, the person at the farmer's market, the um, pedestrian that's crossing the street and making me wait, and I don't want to. Um, I am being reminded with those words, stop and pray, that this is what we're called to, brotherly love. What if I could walk through my days loving as Christ loved? And that is our admonition here. And regarding the love of money, the writer has a few things to say. He directs us to God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 before the Israelites were to cross over into the promised land and also those verses in Psalm 118. Let's see, he says, "Um, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Interesting verses here about the love of money. What did these verses have to do with money? Or should I say the love of money? Well, let's stop. Why is it that we love money? None of us in this room would admit we love money. But why is it that really there's parts of us that love money? I think we could all answer this. Because money gives us a worldly sense of security. And I don't know about you but I know that I love feeling secure. The author of Hebrews reminds these believers of this great truth that was really at the core of their heritage. God alone is our security. And we need to be reminded of that every day. Verses 9 through 13 give us what I consider a hidden Easter egg for sure. Mark talked about that on Sunday. Our Bible study, and this goes back to my reading um, the first five books of the Old Testament while we're doing this Bible study. I, I felt like I, gra- I grabbed this really quickly, and it might not be right, and Jen might not say anything about this and her thing, but our Bible study references Deuteronomy 18.1 and the instructions surrounding the sacrifices offered under Mosaic law. The Levitical priests were given permission to eat of most of the offerings sacrificed in the altar at the tabernacle. That was how they got their food, was they were able to eat most of the offerings, not all of them. Here the writer of Hebrews reminds the church, here's my Easter egg, that we have a better food. The priest could not eat, there's this, they could not eat the sin offering, which was offered annually on the Day of Atonement. Instead, that offering was burned outside of the camp. Well, this was a light bulb for me. We have a Savior and Lord, a better sacrifice, who died outside the camp, providing our final and true atonement. This is a sacrifice. Jesus who suffered outside the camp and is the sacrifice of which, of which we now can partake. This is Jesus' body broken for us outside the camp, it's the better altar, it's the better food. And just as our Savior bore the reproach of the cross outside the city, we too should not be ashamed. Just as he, and this takes us back to the beginning of, our, of chapter 12, just as he disregarded the shame of the cross, we are called to live lives of humility and, yes, suffering Because on this earth, we too have no lasting city, but we look towards the city that is to come. We are to look towards our teachers and our leaders in the church, making sure that resentment and bitterness have no place so that they can serve us, and I love this phrase, with joy and not sighing. (laughs) And now... Let me just pray for us as we close this wonderful benediction from the very end of Hebrews. So Let me pray this for all of us. Now, may the God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, make you complete in everything good, so that you may do his will, working among us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.